Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History, a podcast that brings you the most interesting but controversial events, uh, ideas, developments in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. My name is Derek Taylor, your host for this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I very much appreciate all the listeners. If you want to learn more about the podcast, you can go to our website, churchcontroversies.com. I have a blog there I post from time to time. I'll link to articles which I publish occasionally in places like Crisis Magazine, also on Facebook and on Twitter, so you can contact us that way. Uh, and on YouTube, yes, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, leave comments. Let us know what you think. Um, you know, uh, love to get feedback and interact with you guys, so please do that. This episode, the latest episode, uh, is an episode of uh, our Catholic Live series. If you don't know what that is, you're just listening for the first time, what is that? It's kind of an anodyne title, but it just means uh, Catholics, non-saints, basically, who haven't been uh, canonized yet. Interesting, important, lesser-known lives throughout history. And this is episode 15 of Catholic Lives, and the uh, life we're looking at today is the life of Orestes Brownson, the American Newman, and by American Newman, I mean John Henry, to whom he is sometimes compared. So let's get into his life here. Uh, Orestes Augustus Brownson uh, is an American, uh, one of the most important um, American Catholic writers and thinkers of the 19th century. was born in Stockbridge, Vermont in 1803. Uh, Vermont was the birthplace of many 19th century religious figures in American history. Um, probably, I don't know if too many people know this, but the founder of the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, Joseph Smith, was born there, as was his lieutenant, Brigham Young. Um, Brownson actually wrote later in his life that he actually knew Joseph Smith at one point in his life as a young man. But also people like William Miller. William Miller was a Baptist preacher who was sort of the founder of the Seventh-day Adventists. He was someone who predicted that the end of the world was coming in the 19th century. Uh, and so that's him. And then someone named John Humphrey Noyes, kind of a weird guy, uh, founded a, a utopian religious community up in New York, upstate New York. Strange. Anyway, point is, uh, Orestes uh, Brownson uh, comes from New England, and so Protestant New England, which is kind of a heart, beating heart of American society in the 19th century and both religiously and otherwise. And uh, his father dies when he's two years old, and later poverty forced his mother to send him away to live with an elderly couple, couple in a neighboring town. It's interesting, one of his biographers um, says that uh, Brownson, who his, his works run to several volumes, never writes about his father once in all of his writings. Interesting. Um, but eventually he rejoined, um, and by the way, he gets into religion through his adopted family in uh, um, uh, uh, when he's sent away. When he comes back, he rejoins his mother and his other siblings when he's 14, upstate New York, um, by which time he had it went through the experience of going to one of these outdoor revivals that was then sweeping the western frontier of the United States. If you don't know this, I need to explain this. We mean Protestant revivals, and um, the so-called of the so-called Second Great Awakening. So what happens in the starts about 1801, a couple of years before he's born, 
I believe the first one was in Cambridge, Kentucky. But the Western Frontier, I should mention, in 1803 is basically like backwoods of Pennsylvania, Kentucky, but also upstate New York. And um, you start having these, you know, mass meetings out in the woods where Protestants will go and they will have these ecstatic experiences. As they take it charismatic experiences, people speaking in tongues, um, you know, their bodies convulsing, they called it the shakes. Uh, and he does go through one of these. I don't know if he has any of those experiences, but he goes to one of these. Uh, and by the way, it's called the Second Great Awakening. Um, it's, it's second because the first, there were a series of these revivals that happened in the 18th century during the colonial period in the United States. Uh, nobody called it the first time, the Great Awakening. That was a name that was given in the 1820s to a minister who wrote a book promoting the second wave of revivals, <laughs> who wanted to link the two together anyway. Um, and so he's a part of this. I should mention it as well. For a long time, the epicenter of evangelical revivalist Protestant Christianity was upstate New York, the region in which he was uh, he lived for a while in New York, upstate New York, was actually called the Burnt Over District because there were so many revivals there. So he's a Protestant seeker uh, from a young age. He's interested, interested in religion, and um, by the time he gets into his late teens, he's attracted to universalism. And universalist Christianity is what it sounds like. It's people who believe in the, um, I think you have to call it heresy, that uh, everyone's going, eventually going to be saved. That's what it means, universalism. Despite this, his mother's family and uh, was actually, and his siblings were all Presbyterian. He gets baptized into the Presbyterian church at the age of 19. And one of the things that marks his life, he changes a lot. Religiously speaking, three years later, uh, he leaves Presbyterianism and returns to Universalism and becomes, for several years, a Universalist preacher. He's a minister in the Universalist Church in New England. So he'll travel around different places in that part of the country. And he becomes the editor of a newspaper, the Gospel Advocate. And this would be a big part of his, um, um, his, his future life. He's actually apprenticed to a printer when he's 14 years old. He, he's, a, he's kind of a newspaper guy, a journalist from the early, early period. However, when the, within a few years, he begins reading books by free thinkers who criticize the Bible. People like Robert Owen, who's a figure in that time frame, um, criticized the Bible and its veracity. Uh, eventually, he begins preaching this stuff in the pulpit, and this, this alienates his universalist brethren. And eventually he's forced to resign his, his ministership and, and his editorship of that uh, journal. And he soon gravitates away from this, however, by the early 1830s, to Unitarianism, which was then fashionable in New England. Unitarianism is the idea that um, it basically denies the Trinity. There's only one God. Christ was not God. This was popular in New England at that time. And in the 1830s, 1832 to 1834, he was actually a, a Unitarian minister in uh, Walpole, New Hampshire. He also traveled uh, to Boston, which was, it was it still is in some ways the intellectual heart of the United States, uh, to give lectures at the Lyceum, which was a famous you know um, academy there. People give lectures on the lecture circuit. In 1834, he uh, moved to Massachusetts with his family. He's married and has kids by this time. I'm glossing over his wife. Forgive me, it's not a big part of the story. But he is married, has kids and moves to Kent, Massachusetts, and um, begins preaching there as Unitarian minister, minister fairly, fairly popularly. He's a good preacher. Uh, and in 1836, he eventually moved to Boston and came under the influence of thinkers, Unitarians, like 
William Ellery Channering was a major figure, but also the the you know he'll eventually leave Unitarianism, but the uh, famous uh, man of letters Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it's from this this milieu he'll embrace the sort of uh, what's sometimes called post-Kantian idealism. That is, so you get beyond uh, Immanuel Kant and his thinking, and you're emphasizing. Uh, an idealistic notion uh, of of um, the divine within humanity. This is something that all these people are thinking about. Um, in other words, he becomes part of what's called, if you know, the, you know your American history, if you're an American, you listen to this, he becomes part of what's called the transcendentalist movement in the United States. Transcendentalism was this um, intellectual movement associated with romanticism. A lot of it, from, from, I mentioned Kant because a lot of the inspiration comes from, especially German romantic philosophy. And so that idea of the divine within the human, this is a big theme of Walt Waldo Emerson. You know, you as an individual have a spark in the divine in you and all this stuff. And so he spends time with these people in the 1830s. He actually spends time uh, on Brook Farm. Brook Farm was this sort of uh, sort of utopian community that was founded by Emerson and a bunch of his confreres. Uh, he didn't take to it that well. I don't, he didn't spend too much time there. Again, as you can tell, all these people are kind of moving in a very different direction from where he is. He, at this point in the mid-1830s, um, still believes, for example, in things like original sin. They don't. Um, but he joins, in 1836, Emerson and other people for the first meeting of the, what's called the Transcendentalist Club, where they meet to discuss these spiritual and intellectual issues. And um, Brownson never really, I should mention this, he never really abandons the one basic principle, principle of of transcendentalism is he basically thought that every human being had to in order to access truth had to have some sort of intuitive access to uh, had to have some sort of intuition about this basically um, transcendentalism you know romantic thinking in general emphasizes intuition uh, rather than reason and that always is a part of his thinking even though he changes a lot as you'll see uh, one thing he definitely disagreed with them about was their individualism that part he never really liked uh, and in fact, this will come out later. One of the things that will push him uh, away from this, uh, as you know, I'm talking here, I forgot to mention, he's a convert, obviously, becomes a convert in the 19th century. Um, but uh, at the same time, he's also making his name as a journalist in early, uh, early America. I mentioned being apprenticed as a printer. When he leaves the Universalists in the 1830s, he briefly edits a, a political newspaper, the Genesee Republican, which was a newspaper for a workingmen's party in uh, New York State. It didn't come to much. He left it uh, fairly quickly because he knew the party didn't, wouldn't go anywhere. Uh, but when, become, when he became a Unitarian minister in Boston, he begins publishing uh, essays in Unitarian periodicals. In 1838, he founds his own periodical, the Boston Quarterly Review, which is a journal of politics, religion, and literature, which he writes almost single-handedly. He writes most of the essays in this journal, as you can see. The other journal he founds when he becomes Catholic, which is kind of a refounding of the same thing. Um, and he's a success. I mean, it, his, his journal, the Boston Quarterly, outsells Emerson's journal, The Dial, by a wide margin. The Dial's more influential. Uh, Emerson's a sort of, uh, he's part of the Boston elite, whereas, you know, Brownson is not. And this is actually the other thing that happens at the same time in the 1830s. He becomes a political reformer. And this is very important to him uh, as he engages in politics. He is very critical of industrialization. Uh, he's born in New England, Vermont. Uh, Vermont, New England had had a 
relatively more egalitarian sort of society, uh, social structure. In fact, New England in general, going back to the colonial period, tend to be more egal have a more equal social structure than any of the rest of the colonies uh, in the United uh, in in North America. And when he moved to um, New York as a child with his family, he was kind of shocked by what he saw there. He didn't like the way because he moved near a spa town in upstate New York, and he worked at probably one of these spas. He didn't like the way certain people like lived it up while people were like you know impoverished in other places. And in the 1830s, he begins writing against this um, this industrialization and the way that the northern industrialists treat their workers. And in 1840, he published an essay called The Laboring Classes, which was actually a review of a book by the Scottish thinker Thomas Carlyle called Chartism. Chartism refers to a movement, a working men's movement in England called Chartism. They had a bunch of working men, had a bunch of political and social reforms they wanted Parliament to enact in England. It's called the Great Charter. They tried to get the Parliament to sign off on it. It didn't get their way, but Carlyle's book is the one he reviewed. And in it, he writes this really lengthy condemnation of the industrial classes. Um, that doesn't do it justice. It's a fire-breathing condemnation of the industrial classes. He actually goes so far as to predict that class warfare will ensue if they don't change their ways. Uh, he really, really riles people up. Um, at one point in the essay, he compares favorably uh, slavery southern slavery with northern treatment of workers and if you're wondering what the hell what what he's what, what his basic point was that okay in the south they're slaves but at least they keep them alive feed them clothe them and you have to remember in the early industrial period you know, the first factories are built and everything there's there's no laws about what you can and can't do for workers you can pay them whatever you want you can fire them whenever you want there's no there's no workman's comp there's nothing if you're a worker and you're too sick to work, your family starves. If you die, your family goes to the poorhouse or starves. Um, there's nothing, basically. And this is the basic problem he, thing he points out, which, by the way, it's, a, it's an argument Southern slaveholders used against the North. That, hey, yeah, we have slaves, but you treat your workers worse. It's, it's a really self-serving argument, <laughs> um, but it's not necessarily false. It's basically true. And... Um, yeah, so he does this. He also, in this essay, advocated for the abolition of hereditary property to and to take the funds from this seizure of property by the government to create a national education fund to alleviate for, you know, working men and women, working class men and women, to alleviate the growing problem of economic inequality. Now, as you can imagine, this being the United States, this went over really poorly. <laughs> Um, and by this time, by the way, I should mention he's a Democrat. I have to explain this as well. Um, the party system, 1840. Okay. Okay. The, by this time, there has grown up in the United States what is called the second party system. Um, there originally were two parties that grew out of um, early experience of politics in the United States in the 1790s. The Federalist Party, which favored a stronger centralized government favored financial interests over, you know, farmers and stuff like this, um, led by uh, Alexander Hamilton. And then on the other side, there were the Democratic Republicans, uh, led by Thomas Jefferson, who was, he favored farmers, he favored, favored um, states' rights, stuff like that, didn't want a strong federal government. After the first couple of presidents, Washington and, and Adams were, were Federalists, um, 
Jeffrey, Jeffrey gets elected in 1800 in a really hotly contested election. And from then on, the Democratic Republicans tend to dominate life. And then, long story short, the Federalist Party just dies off by the, by 1818 or so. For several years, there's there's nothing but the Democratic Republican Party. However, in the 1820s, it begins to split between North, between Democrats who want to use the federal government, again, to do enact public works projects and stuff like this, in other words, who want a stronger federal government, and then those who don't. This is the split that happens in 1824 because of the election when uh, Andrew Jackson, the former um, Indian fighter in general, racist, uh, wins the wins the electoral has the most votes in the electoral college and the popular vote, but it goes to the House of Representatives to determine who's going to get the the presidency, and they give it to John Quincy Adams, who's the kind of last last living link with the with the founding fathers because he's the son of John Adams. He gets elected, but after he gets elected. Um, Andrew Jackson gets elected for two terms, and he enacts this sort of states' rights, you know, ideology. He's the first populist leader in American history, appeals to the people directly. Earlier politicians like uh, John Quincy Adams had sort of held themselves aloof from, you know, popular campaigning. They didn't, they thought of themselves as being, you know, um, sort of like platonic guardians. With Jackson, a lot of stuff begins to go away. And in fact, throughout the 1820s and 30s and 40s, there was a move because a lot of states in the United States early on have things like property qualifications for voting, for holding public office. What happens is all those qualifications get stripped away by the 1840s. And so basically by 1840, basically every adult male can vote in the United States, adult white male, I should say, uh, not women, not blacks. Uh, and by the 1840, you have two parties now, but again, because a second party has formed to oppose Jackson and the Democrats, called the Democrats now instead of the Democratic Republicans, to oppose them, and his successor, Martin Van Buren, called the Whigs. The Whigs are kind of the Northeastern, they're kind of the successors of the Federalists, except they're not, they're not as snooty. Uh, they believe in sort of a meritocracy. There's no longer this sense that, you know, only notable families should take part in politics. Uh, and politics by this time has, has sort of split along, is beginning to split along ethnic lines and religious lines. The Democratic Party in 1840 is already becoming the Workingmen's Party. It's also becoming the Populist Party. It's also becoming the Catholic Party. Catholic immigration is already uh, beginning in the 1820s and 30s. Uh, I say all this to explain why Brownson's a Democrat at this point, even though he's still a Protestant, still a Unitarian. He throws his support in the election of 1840 behind Martin Van Buren for president. But because of his essay on the laboring classes, it allowed the Whigs, who were kind of a Northeastern evangelical party, to uh, sort of have a field day portraying Martin Van Buren as a socialist, because they hung that, that essay around his neck. Um, they actually tagged him in uh, propaganda, political propaganda, as Martin Van Ruen, because there was a, a depression in the late 1830s when he was president. They blamed him for it. Long story short, uh, his essay, while kind of great in ways, uh, basically leads to the Democrats getting destroyed by the Whigs. In that election, they win the White House, gain seats in Congress. Uh, and this really has an effect on Brownson. Um, he, he thinks this is all propaganda. He thought voters had been duped by the Whigs, who packaged their candidate, William Henry Harrison, who had been a, again, someone who was a sort of elitist, but an Indian fighter as a sort of man of the people, which he wasn't, and which more to the point, he thought Whig, uh, 
political policies actually supported the economic interest of the wealthy and undermined constitutional limits on government power. So this really disillusions Brownson with politics. Uh, not totally, he'll still be involved, but like it makes him sit down and rethink things. Not only his political, but also his religious commitments. He's been growing steadily um, dissatisfied with the sort of naturalism, but also the subjectivism and the individualism within. Not just Unitarianism uh, as a particular Protestant branch, but as a whole. And he begins reading a guy who was a former, he's a former French socialist, a guy named Pierre Leroux in the 1830s, who was a disciple of a French socialist named uh, Saint-Simon. And from this guy Leroux, he adopts an idea which uh, Leroux called communion. This is the idea that human progress, whether individual or social, depends on a power outside of the self. Again, this is the big thing with the Unitarians, with the Transcendentalists, it's like it's all about the self and the individual. Um, Brownson never liked this. And so from him, he takes this idea that progress, whether social or personal, has a providential basis. And so he begins writing um, um, articles in this vein. In fact, by 1842, um, he, he ceases publishing his quarterly, his Boston Quarterly, and writes a, a letter uh, a book called uh, The Medit Mediatorial Life of Jesus, which is directed at William Ellery Channing, which expresses his growing dissatisfaction with Unitarianism. Uh, in 1844, he publishes a, a series of articles in uh, a Unitarian magazine called The Christian World, in which he begins defending the traditional doctrines of original sin. He begins repudiating, repudiating traditional Protestant notions of salvation and arguing for the necessity of a divinely ordained institution to guide men toward salvation. Other words, he's getting close to becoming Catholic. Uh, and his editors knew this, they cut him off. They basically kicked him out before he could start discussing in print in this Unitarian magazine. Well, what institution might this be? And so by 1844, the, clear, the, the path forward was clear to Brownson. As he put it, quote, either there is already existing the divine institution, the Church of God, or there are no means of reform, unquote. That's something I should mention here. He, he always uh, links revelation, Christianity, and religion with, with reform. So he's unique in that way. Uh, and in fact, uh, by 1843, he had, he had restarted his quarterly, now called the Brownson's Quarterly Review, now called Brownson's Quarterly Review in 1843. And in that review of 1844, at the end of that year, in, um, in August, he uh, announced that he had found the true church in the communion of Rome. He is received in, uh, uh, into the church that year, in August of that year, by the Bishop of by Fitzpatrick of Boston, 1844, and he begins reading uh, scholastic theology, a real big change for him away from what he had done before. He kind of, he abandons the explicit philosophy he had used before, the whole idea of communion, but he never quite loses that connection with human progress and reform. But uh, he helped initially to convert former Protestant friends, and he did. One of them, a man named Isaac Hecker, um, who was a former, <laughs> formerly of Brook Farm with him back in his Transcendentalist days, uh, was received later that year in October under his, under his influence. Uh, so he did have some success that way, but most of his former Transcendentalist friends immediately shunned him. Theodore Parker, who was a famous one of them, accused him in a sermon of possessing, quote, an unbalanced mind, intellectual always, but spiritual never, 
unquote. And after that, they all basically ignored them for the rest of his life. Nonetheless, Brownson went on to become an outspoken apologist and defender of Catholic interests. And excoriating Protestants uh, in his quarterly whenever Catholics were under suspicion, which was quite often in the 19th century. If you don't know, with the coming of Catholic immigration from Ireland in the 1830s and 40s, there are uh, there are several attacks on Catholic churches uh, in uh, 1840s, several of them in places like Philadelphia. So uh, he has a lot to do in the middle of the 19th century, and so I won't go through all of this. You can have to learn some of this, uh, uh, go this another uh, episode perhaps. But uh, he begins writing in an apologetic vein, which is pretty typical for the time. Um, one of his biographers calls his his apologetics his apologetic style as that of what he calls quote the method of authority uh, that is against the Protestant critique of um, you know individual you know whatever uh, private judgment he he stresses the need for a visible infallible church to guide men to the truth of revelation he also resurrects the 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 phrase nulla nulla uh, um, nulla uh, saldos extra uh, extra ecclesiam uh, to the embarrassment of some Catholics, there are a lot of Catholics at that point who were trying to sort of rebuff charges that uh, Catholics condemn everybody to hell, basically arbitrarily. Uh, and so he's he's very militant, especially in his first days. He he comes down a little later on, um, but his 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 message is essentially the same, basically, as that of Newman, John Henry Newman, or earlier, the Abbe de la Monet, uh, though he is much less. Irenic in this than his friend Isaac Hecker. Isaac Hecker takes a much more, um, you know, peaceful line toward trying to convert Protestants. Uh, as I mentioned before, he he militated his stance somewhat by the late, especially the late by the, by the 1850s. On the other hand, again, in an age when you know, again, most Catholics were immigrants in this country in the United States, and despised as you know, priest-ridden, ignorant, those sorts of things. His strong defense was actually welcomed by a lot of people. Um, but he could be prickly, and he could sometimes pick fights that were kind of unnecessary. And in 1846, he published an essay, a review of John Henry Newman's essay on doctrinal development, in which he attacked his idea. Um, effectively, what his big complaint is that it sounded kind of Protestant to him. He thought that Newman's expression, that basically Newman's basic idea is that the deposit of the face never changes, but that the church's understanding expands with time. And uh, I haven't read all of it, but from what I can tell of it, it basically thinks it puts too much emphasis on, you know, the human mind or the mind of the church. Uh, it, it downplays too much the objective aspects of things. And he thought Newman failed to clearly distinguish between the faith itself and the church's understanding of it. And one reason he's doing this, because at this point, again, the way most people explained the Catholic faith to people outside of it was... Uh, probably encapsulated in the phrase semper iadem, it's a Latin phrase meaning always the same. They basically deny there have been any real changes. And uh, what's happening in the 19th century, of course, is that modern history is beginning to sort of uh, make that idea untenable. And so Newman's trying to get ahead of that. But this actually upsets a lot of people, his attack, because Newman's, of course, you know, this great convert in England. He's being attacked by a Protestant. So why are you attacking this guy? Uh, but in fact, Brownson later admitted to Newman that he'd made a mistake. And in a letter later on in his life, Newman Newman talked about how much he respected and admired him for doing that. So he does sort of come down from us. But he's a combative guy. And um, in fact, in 1854, in response to um, 
to um, to uh, Protestants' attacks on Catholics as being un-American. As you know, this is one of the major themes of a lot of American history. You guys, if you're American, you listen to this, you don't know this because you live when this basically is no longer mostly an issue. Um, you know, the idea that Catholicism was incompatible with American life. That you know, submitting to the Pope's authority makes you a sort of psychologically crippled moron who can't think for himself. And Brownson wrote an essay in 1854 called Native Americanism, in which he his response to this was that, in fact, democratic institutions require um, a religious basis. And in fact, because, uh, and, and religion, of course, requires an authority. And so his, his argument, which he never abandons, by the way, is that democratic institutions, and in specific American institutions, in the long run, can only be sustained by Catholicism. Uh, and so he he, had, he liked big, bold ideas. Look at the map. Uh, and so he gained support. He gained notice, for example, in the 1850s of Pius IX and recognized his efforts. And by the middle of the 1850s, he had enough of a reputation that Newman, ignoring his earlier attacks, uh, if you remember, John Henry Newman founded a uh, Catholic, tried to found a Catholic university in Dublin, Ireland. And he invited Brownson to join the faculty. However, during the that in that essay, on Native Americanism, Brownson had written some things that had offended Irish-American Catholics. What he said was that basically the Irish in America, because Catholicism was universal, they should they should drop their Irish cultural habits and assimilate to, to the Anglo-Saxon ones, which were the dominant culture of the country. And so as a result, the bishops in Ireland would not stomach it. And so they basically, they basically made it impossible and so they forced him to decline that invitation. So the interesting sort of a sidebar there, uh, and eventually again he's kind of he's a little bit combative. He it has disputes with his bishop Fitzpatrick of Boston, so he leaves, leaves to move to New York in 1855. And um, during the sectional crisis of the 1850s, he defends the Union cause. However, uh, until the war starts, Civil War starts, he did not think that slavery was worth endangering the Union for, because he, again he basically still believed that industrial Industrial wage workers were basically treated as bad as slaves in the North. Once the war came, however, he turned and backed the Union completely. He backed emancipation as a war measure. By the way, he was never for slavery. He never thought it was a good thing. Um, he never said that. Uh, in fact, he runs unsuccessfully for Congress in 1862 as a Republican. Uh, but uh, when his uh, two years later, two of his sons die in the United States Civil War, and he shudders. Uh, his review in 1864, and in fact, between this, uh, between 18, you know, middle of the 1850s and 1864, his thought changed. This is again, it happens with him a lot. He became a lot closer to Europe, European Catholic liberals in his thinking, like Henri Lacordaire, the old friend and colleague of uh, of Lamennais in France. And he began to advocate in his journal for uh, the church to try to incorporate insights from modern science and thought into the church's teaching. Um, he became much more sympathetic to some of the ideals of people like that in Europe. However, once Pius IX issued the Syllabus of Errors in 1864, uh, he backed off of this position. And following the Vatican Council, First Vatican Council, he painstakingly for many years defended the dogma of papal infallibilities, which was controversial, by the way, even among some American uh, bishops. In fact, if you don't know this, a little fun fact, one of the few bishops at the First Vatican Council to stay 
when they were voting on the definition of papal infallibility and voted against it, was the Bishop of Little Rock, Arkansas. So it was not universally popular. Again, there's this tension in the United States between the authority of the church, which seems to be so absolute, and sort of, you know, free society of America. Uh, and so his voice was an important one, trying to explain it, trying to say what it was. And he did this in, 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 in sort of um, very dutiful detail uh, in his, uh, his quarterly. The last years of his life in the 1870s uh, are taken up uh, with trying to basically show, trying to basically target aspects of modern society he thinks are incompatible with Catholicism, particularly its naturalism. And other forms of liberalism, which he kind of turns on. Although I should say, he never, again, he never embraces, he never rejects his totally, his youthful embrace of reform. It's still important to him as a, a Catholic, but also political thinker. And this is kind of encapsulated by what's seen as his magnum opus as a writer, which is not on, it's not on religion per se, although it's got religion in it. It's called The American Republic, which is his discussion of the American Constitution. And uh, Brownson had this idea that well, two ideas, two big ones I'll discuss here. And I've only read parts of this, but you can read descriptions of it for yourself somewhere else. He thought America had a providential destiny to spread freedom in the world, to spread a free constitution everywhere. And um, which is a fairly standard, it's a fairly standard American thing, right? Americans think their constitution is the best, they want to spread everywhere. He had a kind of a, a slightly more interesting take on this because he made a distinction between what he called the written constitution, you know, the actual one that was written in 1787 and what he called the providential constitution. He thought all, all nations had unwritten, he means providential, you know, arranged by God ultimately, constitutions. And he thought that the United States' actual genius was its providential constitution, which preceded the written one, and which was not produced by the nation itself. And so his thought, is, again, this is it's kind of interesting. It, it has interesting parallels with certain romantic thinkers who saw society as a sort of pre-existing organism and not created by human design, like Edmund Burke, like Joseph de Mestre, and in his own way, uh, John Henry Newman. And uh, if any of his works are still read today, it's pretty much that one. Um, I, again, the parts of it I have read, I'm not sure I agree with everything in it. <laughs> in fact, I'm pretty sure I disagree with a lot of it in it. Um, but I will say he's, a, he's an interesting thinker. In any case, um, as he gets to the, the 1870s, his health begins to fail, but he still continues uh, to write. He writes for Isaac Hecker's uh, newspaper, The Catholic World, and even re revives Brownson's Quarterly for a couple of years in 1873 and then again in 1875. But eventually he, uh, like all of us, uh, has to give up the ghost, and he passes from this life in the year of the U.S. Centennial, in 1876, on April 17th, in Detroit, Michigan, uh, and his remains were later moved to the Crypt of the Sacred Heart Basilica on the campus of Notre Dame, uh, University of Notre Dame, in 1886, where they remain to this day. Uh, and this ends the life of, you know, one of the great apologists in all of American history for Catholicism. And this is a great age of apologetics in the 19th century. Monet, Newman, and Brownson deserves, I think, to be up with those figures. Uh, just thinking about his legacy. I mean, he really was really important for the church in the 19th century. The fact that someone from that background, it's hard to imagine today just how, just how again, how New England was the, the spiritual and intellectual epicenter of the country. 
someone from that background sort of crossed the Tiber back then, especially at a time when the church in the United States was still mostly a fairly poor immigrant church. It didn't have a lot of intellectual means of defending itself against attacks from Protestants. He, in some ways, was providential. His conversion and his, his efforts, he wrote a ton. He wrote on almost everything. Um, his education, I know, include, included some you know classical learning. Obviously, his parents liked it because his name's Orestes Augustus, but, uh, but um, a well-read person, I'm not sure. Um, you know, as you can see from his life, he does have that uh, a similar sort of trajectory to a certain degree. Uh, as Newman, his conversion is a little different. Uh, Newman brought with him into the Catholic Church in England his own ideas, you know, the doctrine stuff from the Anglican tradition, whereas there's not a whole lot you can bring in from Unitarianism or Universalism, and so uh, they're kind of different that way. But otherwise, I think they're both fairly similar in that regard. Don't think Brownson, from what I've read, and I haven't read much, to be fair, it's quite the same, it's not quite the same level of thinker that Newman is. But otherwise, they perform similar uh, similar services for the church. Uh, and uh, and today, for the most part, if, if he's remembered at all, it's usually by for, one, for, for political reasons, for his book, The American Republic, which is kind of... It makes sense in some ways. I mean, in the 20th century, I know the Catholic intellectual, conservative intellectual, Russell Kirk, promoted his work. And in fact, the guy whose, whose ideas I think Brownson actually most anticipates in the 20th century, if anybody knows who this is, is the late Richard John Newhouse. Newhouse, if you don't know who this was, uh, a, a former Lutheran, was a Lutheran minister from Canada, he was a Canadian too but emigrated to the United States, became a big activist during the 1960s, civil rights activist. He marched in civil rights protests with, with Martin Luther King Jr. But uh, Roe versus Wade and the abortion uh, question turned him into a conservative politically. And in the late 1980s, he converted to Catholicism and he founded a publication, an ecumenical publication called First Things, which is still in, still in existence, kind of an intellectual, public intellectual type deal. I actually got a letter published in First Things one time. Uh, once uh, that's it, but um, Newhouse was kind of kind of the, had the same idea that you know for the American experiment to succeed and survive it needs to have a religious basis, and therefore it needs to have Catholicism. That's kind of that's kind of a resurrection of, of Brownson's Brownson, Brownson's ideas. He's also I I just said he's probably the, one of the more I guess maybe Isaac Hecker you could say was more I don't know successful but. He's probably the most successful apologist in the United States until you get someone like Fulton Sheen in the 20th century, who, of course, different magnitude there, you know, priest than a bishop. Fulton Sheen had his own TV show at one point. Um, um, so a little different, but he's important for all those reasons. But I think even as a thinker, I think for me, the most important thing about his legacy, the important reason to know who he is, is that, uh, again, one of the big you know, criticisms, not even a theological sense of Catholicism by people who weren't Protestants and other people is that, you know, we believe in the authority of the church in a way that, you know, limits our, our freedom. We can't go everywhere we want intellectually. And the thing about Orestes Brownson, he's sometimes been criticized as being someone who contradicted himself. Maybe sometimes he did, but he was someone who was literally trying to seek the truth and was willing, as in the case of Newman, to admit he was wrong. Um, but he was also someone who was very genuinely independent-minded. He went wherever he thought the truth lay, found that in the church, and continued to find that all his life long and defended it with 
with his own thoughts. That's the thing you can probably say about him. He was, I, I think he's an interesting thinker. Again, I don't think what I've read so far, I, <laughs> I, there's some things I think I definitely disagree with in his thinking, but always interesting. He's worth disagreeing with. Always interesting, but always also uh, someone who is genuinely independent-minded and therefore I think a good model for Catholics in some ways to emulate while being obedient to church authority. And so that is it. That is our little, um, our uh, our review of the life of Orestes Brownson, the great apologist of the 19th century. Um, be on the lookout for several episodes in the coming weeks. Some I didn't anticipate, but some fun stuff. I know we do controversies here and controversies in church. Some that's a little more lighthearted, be good stuff. A special episode also coming up in the coming weeks. Uh, one last thing I'm probably putting off. I think I mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. The longer series, like we did with the Catholic liberalism and liberation theology for a while. I have some, again, writing projects I've been going, doing and everything. But lots of single standalone episodes coming, so be on the lookout for that stuff. Uh, again, you know, like and subscribe, subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to YouTube. Um, you know, tell a friend about the podcast. Help me get the word out there. I really appreciate it. But also just... Um, but everything else, thank you guys for my listeners. I really appreciate you guys. Hope you enjoyed this, got something out of it. And so until next time, this is Derek Taylor for Controversies in Church History. Um, uh, signing off. Thank you guys. God bless you. And see you next time. <laughs>